myself properly set up to deal with the microphone this time. Last time I made a bit of a pig's ear with that. So, oh, good morning. Looking in uh, Acts 20 this morning, as has been shared. Really um, encouraged by the time of worship and lots of thoughts that I think will be reiterated in, in uh, different ways this morning and hopefully um, a little bit extra depth brought out in that as well. So, um, before we read it, just now a passage today, we'll, we'll enjoy seeing uh, a picture of the early church who were eagerly working together and learning together. And um, as we have introduction, it will sort of fit in what I'm thinking. The passage God is thinking about um, what makes a, a good united team for a, a united purpose and goal, whether that's at home or at work or in sports. And I'm sure at times we've all either been part of or enjoyed watching successful teams and sadly I'd imagine we've all been part of teams where things have gone pear-shaped as well. Now I'm loath to make an example from something as trivial as the football um, but in the last few years haven't we, had, haven't we had a perfect case in point of, of good and bad teams and what it takes to be part of them. And we see that a bad team is rudderless, it lacks leadership, it's disunited within itself, um, it might be half-hearted or even disinterested. It might look like it has all the right parts and people collected from all over the world, but without unity and without commitment to the same cause, the team collapses. And we saw that locally as our frighteningly expensive team collapsed through two relegations just a few years ago. However, a good team is united, isn't it? A good team has strong leadership and is determined to fight for the same cause. It might not look like much on the surface, but a united team with purpose is often called greater than the sum of its parts. And in the past couple of years, those of us who are still watching the football have seen a team enjoy a bit of a renaissance of spirited performances and, and progress. Now, to shelve those trivialities, um, as we look at our passage, our passage this morning is another one of those opportunities to see um, a couple of snapshots in time in the early church and learn from the best of what they did. We know that the early church wasn't perfect. We know that they, like we will have at times, had disagreements and failures but there's no doubt, as we read, that God was using them mightily. And at their best, they give us these brilliant lessons to learn from. They were operating as a team, but more importantly than that, as the body of Christ, which silly analogies about football can't really do any uh, comparison to, of course. They had different roles and functions. Um, they had different gifts to bring, but they were shaped into something greater than the sum of their parts. And so I plan to shed some light on two of the driving factors this morning. There's two neat chunks to study. Um, as, I'll, as I'll cover those, there's six verses each. And I hope that those two things will sort of come together to teach us of something um, of what we, as individuals as, and as a church body, should be striving for. So we're looking at unity in Christ and a thirst for the Lord. Let's turn to the passage and just be looking out for these things as we uh, see the examples God gives us in his word. This is Acts 20, verses 1 to 12. When the uproar had ended... Paul sent for the disciples and, after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He travelled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby. Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. 
But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word this morning. As already has been uh, emphasized in our time of worship, I thank you for the way that it speaks and guides, uh, shapes and changes us. And I pray, Lord, that um, you would just speak through the words this morning, Lord. There's some very clear messages I hope to come out of the passage. And I pray that ultimately it would be your... Um, power in your spirit that would speak and minister to your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, after Bass and Fell, it might seem like quite a while uh, since Adrian brought us the right in Ephesus, and obviously we had Kevin speaking here last week. So just to briefly recap, um, Paul has spent some considerable time, two years, in this Greek city of Ephesus on Turkey's west coast. And on the map there, I know it's bright this morning, but the blue star is a reminder of where, where we've been in Ephesus. Um, and the gospel message, as we saw, has spilled out from there to the whole region of about two million people. And in the midst of the gospel turning lives upside down in Ephesus, we saw that it was great for spiritual growth, but terrible for economic growth, if you remember a couple of weeks ago. There was the burning of all of those occultic books and that collection as the people repented. And then we had Demetrius's complaint that the silversmiths and the shrine makers were facing ruin since people were turning away from the idols they made towards the living God. So we had a riot, which by God's providence was quelled by that city clerk. He was worried that the Romans would get involved if their precious peace was not upheld. And that's where we left it. And as we see here in verse 1 of the passage, Paul now heads off to Macedonia. He's on the move again. And so on the map there, and what we call Paul's third missionary journey, you can see that Paul leaves Ephesus, which is the blue star, and he goes right around the top of uh, uh, into Macedonia, all the way down into Greece in the first few verses of our passage, and then he loops back round again through Macedonia, and then the second chunk we'll look at is in the red star, which is Troas. So he's kind of going a long, long way in the passage that we see at the beginning here. Where am I up to? Uh, yes, there we go. So the first chunk we want to see this morning, verses 1 to 6, is uh, unity in Christ I want to think about. So it says, after leaving Ephesus, Paul spends time encouraging the churches that are established there already. And we've seen this before. Verse 2 says he traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. And on an initial reading, notice that the gospel has now taken root across the ancient world in all these regions and cities. And I think there must have been great joy for Paul in this. If we compare his first missionary journey when there was no gospel message and he was going into dark places, and now as he returns, he brings all these spiritual blessings um, that God has prepared for the people in all of these places. And now he's able to spend time getting among the believers and discipling them. And ultimately, they're going to do a lot of the work that he was doing before now in preaching the gospel to those around them. So the words in verse 2 that are translated to us, words of encouragement, 
I found, can have a very full range of meanings. And sometimes we don't capture it very well in the English. It's too shallow a reading to think that Paul just went around to encourage everyone the way that we think about encouragement today as maybe a warm or lovely little nudge or, you know, positive vibes for them. While that might have been an important part of what Paul was doing, that doesn't really capture the word. I found out that the Greek word there is parakaleo. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's a very full word. It has lots of meaning. But at its base, it really means to exhort, to appeal, to urge. It's sort of an umbrella meaning for lots of things. So it can be rebuke, and it can be comfort, It could be instructions that he brings them, or it could be warnings. A little bit like we get in Paul's letters in the rest of the New Testament, it basically is giving the churches anything that they need to encourage them towards a goal, to urge them on. And that's why it's been translated towards words of encouragement. It's all a push to focus on Christ in that unity for the gospel. And we see all these churches, they're united in the cause of the gospel. And so Paul's focus is to always give them whatever they need, whether that's support or a challenge, to keep them going, to keep them on task and to encourage them in the faith. And so the first thing I think we need to see in what Paul does is a reminder that the church needs a variety of kinds of messages at different kinds, which we've already had really coming through the worship this morning. Sometimes it might be a supportive nudge. Sometimes it might be a bit of a challenging push or even a kickstart to something new. And on his third journey in many of these stops, Paul, as he goes around, may well have been writing a lot of the letters that we've come to know as the New Testament as he's going. His encouragement, as we call it in the passage, has definitely included a wide range of styles if we look at his letters. And actually, so far as Paul's concerned in setting us an example today, encouragement would be anything that keeps us focused on following Jesus to the end and being united in the cause of the gospel. And so for me, when I read Paul's inspired words, sometimes it feels like a great comfort and a positive nudge just to keep going. And at other times, and I'm sure you're the same, it feels more like a slap across the face to turn away from sin or apathy and get back in the race. For example, I'm always so encouraged and comforted by Paul's great statements on salvation. How often do I turn to Romans 8, 38 and 39 for that, which says... For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I always praise God when you say those verses, and sometimes that might be what we need. A gentle and comforting reminder that God has got us in his hand. But encouragement, as we've seen, parakaleo, is more than just words of comfort. Paul was often inspired to call believers to be sanctified, to change. And there's so many examples we could study where Paul makes really bold commands. But a concise one would be 1 Corinthians 16, 13 to 14. Which says, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. I see Paul goes to extremes at times. He reminds the Galatians that those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And I'm sure that kind of message must have been hard to hear as he's traveling around, and it can be hard for us to hear as well when we feel convicted about our sin and know that God is calling us to repentance and change in our lives. So clearly, there's words needed in season to us. So the challenge, I guess, is if the church, whether that's here or anywhere else, 
only preaches a warm and fuzzy message that tries to send you away feeling good every week, they're not doing what Paul did here in Acts 20. They're not following the biblical pattern. On the flip side, if the church always preaches with fiery intensity and tries to browbeat the congregation into a state of fear, that it would be equally an issue as well. It's clear from that full, wide-ranging word, parakaleo, that we looked at, that Paul was instructed to bring words in season to the churches. There is a time for comforting and lifting up believers in the words, and there's a time for that gentle encouragement, a time for focusing on those promises of assurance and salvation. And so you might go away feeling good or bright, or even, dare I say it, a little bit fuzzy from time to time. But at other times, you'll be convicted by the word to change direction as well. You could come away feeling motivated to seek Jesus afresh in your personal walk, to crucify the flesh, to stand firm in the faith. They're all acceptable ways to leave the place as well. You might feel shaken up by the words. So let's not forget that Jesus himself shook up a lot of folks who were pretty clean on the surface. He was the one who called the religious leaders, no less, a brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs. So if you say this morning that you love the word of God, and you love the Lord Jesus, I guess the challenge is to come prepared to submit yourself to the authority of his word to you and be prepared to be exhorted or challenged or warned or comforted or even urged to change direction completely. And our prayer should be here that this church would treat the word of God as it claims in Hebrews 4 verse 12, which says this, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And we see that, don't we, when Paul speaks and writes with this God-given power wherever he goes. He is so, so determined that the churches would remain in Christ, that they would be united in him and follow him. Now, what's really beautiful in Paul's example this morning is that we see just after that verse that he's tested yet again in the very next verse of our passage I guess the question, can he back up what he preaches? The verse says, because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. And you can see that on the map. That he goes back straight through where he's already been because of this threat. And it just feels like as you read it, that Paul just can't catch a break, can he? Everywhere he's going, he might be doing this amazing work and bringing encouragement and, and having this amazing impact, but he can never seem to put his head down safely anywhere and rest. He's always wanted, he's always pursued, always in danger. And we might wonder why God allowed it to be so brutal on him. Now, I think the answer is clear in his own writings. His conduct in the suffering that he went through glorified the Lord Jesus all the more, and it makes the words that he says all the more authentic to inspire us to this day. John Calvin says about this, a plot was made against Paul by the Jews. The Lord did exercise his servant so diversely and so continually that he set before us in him an example of most excellent constancy. Let all the servants of Christ set this mirror before their eyes that they may never faint through the wearisomeness of straits. I hope that makes sense. Paul so severely tested in his ministry, he suffered so intensely that his example is left for us as well as his words. And as John Calvin puts it there, excellent constancy is what we see, isn't it? Let that be for a mirror for us when we're exhausted on our own trials as well. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 10. But we have this treasure 
in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. And I'm sure it's because of his shining example that Paul regularly exhorts his readers to become imitators, copiers of him. Now, in the rest of this first chunk, um, we get what might look on the surface just like an informative list, and maybe it is, but I did think about it for a little bit and found the information in it is um, there's some beautiful truths in there. Now, I headed this point as unity in Christ, and I'm sure Paul had that in mind on all of his travels and encouragements, as we've seen, but we get so much more than a list of names in here. And we get the places that they come from, and we get clues that show us the unity I'm talking about in action. See, Paul's now bringing with him uh, an entourage, really, of believers um, from all the places listed there, from all of his missionary journeys, when at one time there was only darkness. And now these believers from all over are united in Christ, united in this mission. They're a missions team going with him. They couldn't care less that Timothy is, you know, one of them Galatians. And as we'll see here, Aristarchus is one of these stuck-up Macedonians. So we're going to see, aren't we, that um, he comes with Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus. And they're modeling that the local churches, they shouldn't be isolated and inward-focused, but united in the gospel message. So I'm going to try and see if this flicks over. There we go. Perfect. Um, have a look at the map again here. So I listed the places in our passage that I mentioned where they all come from and pinned them all with the yellow star um, just to see the spread of individualists who are traveling now with Paul. I've mentioned them there already. They're all united because they're in Christ. Now, Galatians 3, 26 to 29, such a famous scripture, um, but for good reason. If you want to look it up for a second, it's Galatians 3, 26 to 29. And just look at how clearly emphasized in this passage the unity is because we're found in Christ in this passage. Listen out for those words. That is the basis for being a church and for doing anything together. It says this, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed, yourself, clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It should be such a thrill to us to be united, not just to our brothers and sisters in the local church, but to the universal or small c Catholic church. Uh, Catholic just means that, universal, and it's a uh, shame that it's hoarded by anybody. We shouldn't let anybody hoard the term. It's you if you belong to Christ, if you're in Christ, you're part of the universal church. And in the passage, just to emphasize that it's not just a uni uh, unity of nationalities, but everyone here, there's more. Because these names that are mentioned are significant too. Aristarchus is a name that is connected with aristocracy, the ruling class. So it's likely that Aristarchus, who's mentioned there, came from a wealthy and powerful family. But on the flip side, Secundus, who's actually from the same place, Sadly, is a common name for a slave. It meant second, you can sort of hear it in the, in the term. At this time in history, slaves were often not called by their true names. Um, the first ranking slave in a household would often be called primus, and the second 
would be called Secundus. So he and him together in just one little sentence, Aristarchus and Secundus, brothers in Christ and teammates united for the same cause. No distinction mentioned, no division, all serving together. And some application for us today then, just be encouraged to consider the unity in Christ. I think we can find it difficult sometimes where cultural differences are concerned or uh, to understand one another and churches maybe from around our city or even around the world. We speak of unity, but we don't often stop to consider the unity of Christ's bride, the church, all over the world. And perhaps in our subconscious, we're a little bit unsettled by the different ways that people do church. Maybe it's too loud or it's too quiet or it goes on too long or the worship isn't quite how we like it. And I'm sure we do need to be discerning about whether the church glorifies God or tries to glorify itself. And so the, the point here isn't just to embrace every practice. Um, but I can guarantee that none of the churches that are scattered all over the ancient world there looked exactly like we did either. Um, there can be breadth in our experience and breadth in the style of services, but still union in Christ. So if there's any divisions that maybe you've put into church life or any grievances that would harm that unity, be urged to put them right to dear. Now, as we move into verses 7 to 12, something special to note, um, which uniquely, I think, attests to the eyewitness testimony in Acts. We know the author is Luke, and it's addressed to the same Theophilus as Luke's gospel is. And for a while, Luke has been writing about Paul and his companions um, using he and they to describe what's going on. So Paul had left Luke in Philippi in Acts 16, verse 40. But suddenly in verse 5 and 6 in our passage, Luke switches from speaking to Paul and the events in the third person back to the first person again. Uh, Luke has resumed the we narrative in the passage. And we're told that he met Paul in Philippi and then sailed with Paul to Troas where they met Paul's other traveling examples. So that's just quite an interesting detail to see how it's been written from somebody who was there. And that's where we land back together in Troas. If we go back to slide one, I think, uh, I'll flick that. Perfect, thank you. Um, and we'll see the red star there. We now arrive in Troas after Paul's finished this big loop round and he's kind of heading back. Now, a couple of contextual details are worth picking up in these verses when we're thinking about thirst for the Lord in this bit. So verse 7 is the first time we see believers in Acts um, meeting on the first day of the week on a Sunday. And it's the first certain time anyway. It's not to say that they haven't been doing that. In fact, I would say it is a pattern up to this point, but it's the first certain time that it's discussed in that way. It also establishes why they met, to break bread. And I won't spend time addressing the importance of the breaking of bread, what we would call communion today, but simply notice the value that's set here on meeting together and following the command of Jesus to break bread together as part of fellowship. But as we've seen uh, here and as we discussed uh, from Johnny last week, it was the custom of the early church to meet together on the Lord's day, to celebrate his resurrection and to proclaim his death until he returns. That's why they met on a Sunday. And historically, before this and to this day, the Jews uh, celebrated the Sabbath on Saturdays. That was the day of rest and the day in which work was forbidden for them. But this is a wonderful picture of the early church meeting for fellowship and being spiritually fed on a Sunday, the day the Lord rose again. And we take for granted today that the early church, uh, well, sorry, not the early church, that the church today can meet on a Sunday. But unfortunately for the early church, they're the trendsetters, and it wasn't quite as easy for them to do it. Back in Acts, Sunday was a working day. And so the context, which I think is quite helpful for this passage, 
um, is that everyone has likely had a very busy day in Troas at work. And now it seems they get together in the evening to break bread. And it's an urgent gathering, we're told, really, because Paul's time is limited with them. He's leaving the next day, and we learn in verse 7 that Paul delivers a lengthy sermon until midnight. I talk about a word in season in the passage. Paul must have felt a spiritual need to give them an extensive message before moving on because he was poss- it was possible he was never going to see them again. So put the details together. It's nearly midnight after a full day at work. Um, there's a lot of lamps, we're told, very specifically. It's a little bit like uh, what we had last Sunday morning, maybe. It's probably hot and stuffy in the room, and the air might well be full of like lamp fumes or whatever it is that's going on there. And Paul is still going on and on. And verse 9 tells us, Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Now, poor Eutychus. Now, I notice a spread of opinions on this, and many people are quick to judge Eutychus here. And naturally, we're tempted to think that he was bored or he didn't take the word very seriously or something like that. And it's possible, but the passage doesn't say anything like that. In fact, I feel like the passage is more at pains to try and explain why this poor fellow is struggling. It doesn't say that he's bored or he doesn't care. Think it through for a second. There must have been so little space in the room um, that there was nowhere decent to sit down, but he goes and sits on the window ledge anywhere. He's probably knackered, but he stays. And the Greek, when translated, most accurately says that he's overpowered by deep sleep. You can sort of see him trying and feeling. He's doing his best to stay conscious. And it's also some comfort uh, to preachers to know that even the Apostle Paul preached and found his audience falling asleep at least once. And you could maybe preach from this the importance of being alert and eager to hear the word of the Lord. And that's true. But I personally err on the side of saying that we'll all find ourselves in Eutychus' shoes at some point. It's been a long week and it's late, but you came to hear the word of the Lord anyway because it's important to you. And so I think the gathering here of the believers should be seen really as a positive, if you ask me. Everyone who was there reckoned a good night's sleep was worth giving up um, for the spiritual food that Paul was bringing to them. But regardless of that, I think Eutychus' death puts a bit of a sour note on the meeting. And I'm not sure what to expect next, really. Three stories it's like really high, isn't it, to imagine falling from. It's just like a traumatic moment for everyone who's there. And you can picture the congregation sort of tumbling down the steps to get to him. All this commotion, and I'm sure there was a lot of crying and a lot of distress in the moment. And verse 10 says, Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Eutychus, we're told, was dead. But Paul receives the gift of faith from God and God is able to raise this young man from the dead. And it almost reads with a sort of as simple as that tone. The way that Paul announces that he's alive. To us, it's a massive miracle. To God, the creator of life, it's as easy as that. And what I find astonishing about the passage is that this miracle barely even interrupts their meeting, does it? They just go straight back upstairs and continue. They carry on with breaking bread and they talk until daylight before Paul departs. The young man joins them alive and it says they were greatly comforted. And I think they would be after uh, they're saying goodbye to Paul. And I'm sure it's a, a difficult meeting, but they go away with great comfort. 
And if it was me, I was thinking about that. I would have put Eutychus up at the front when we got back upstairs. Um, I would have, never mind the meeting, tell us what happened, Eutychus. What was it like? Tell us the story. How do you feel now about what you've experienced? But there's none of that. I don't know, Eutychus might as well have gone back to his windowsill, um, so far as I'm concerned. I did wonder if anyone offered him their chair when he got back upstairs, just in case. Because they were gathered for one purpose. They didn't do any of the... There was no fuss about it. They gathered to listen to Paul's message until he left, to get every ounce of good teaching out of Paul, who taught with God's authority. They were there because in Paul's teaching, they could be spiritually fed, drawn nearer to Jesus and know him better. And that's what they do before the miracle and after the miracle as well. And I think the application of that's quite obvious, really. The miracle takes center stage in the passage, but the application ought to come from the example that's set by the believers. Just look at their dedication, being up at all hours of the night. Yes, they're tired, they're worn out, it's late, but they're still here in such numbers that the room is dangerously full. What can we learn from their desire, their thirst for the preaching of the words? Do you and I, do you thirst after the living words? Do you thirst to know Jesus more? Do you love him in such a way that you're desperate to learn more about him and draw nearer to him? And I got to think a little bit about Psalm 42 which is a psalm that describes a person in a pretty desperate state. The writer in the psalm calls the Lord my saviour and my God. And in the psalm, they remember joyful praises. They remember festivals in the temple. They think of those spiritual highs that they've experienced in the past. But now the writer of Psalm 42 says their soul is downcast and disturbed within them. Even though they know God is merciful and good to them, they feel abandoned. They feel overwhelmed by their circumstances. And the very first verses of the psalm provide such wisdom in their thinking. Rather than shake the fist and turn away from God or wallow in self-pity, they say this in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? And their rallying call at the end of the psalm is, Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him my saviour and my God. Now the people in Troas at this, at this meeting, they're having a, a, a sad day ultimately at the beginning of it. They're saying goodbye to Paul and they've only had seven days with him. You know, in Corinth and in Ephesus, as we've looked at, they got years out of him on his third missionary journey. Those who are saying goodbye to Paul are often weeping, such as the impact of his ministry. But rather than complain about their measly seven days with him, they use this time wisely. They're like the deer, aren't they, in the passage. They're panting for streams of water. They're lapping up every last second that they get to spend with him. They thirst for fellowship, for spiritual food. And do you look forward to hearing the word like that? Do you go away and digest it and take it that seriously? And the big question for me was, if late at night after a day at work was the only opportunity that you'd have to hear it, would you be here this morning or this evening, as the case may be? Take notice of their example. But, and I've talked about conviction already this morning. If you examine yourself and you don't feel that kind of thirst, then please don't be disheartened either. What can we do if we don't have that desire? If we're not seeking streams of water and thirsting after God? I think all of us at times will go through dry spiritual spells and we experience an apathy that sets in or stifles our interest and makes us feel distant from God. We can say the right things, but we can also come and know that our hearts are feeling really far from him. 
So I'm just going to suggest three simple things that maybe have helped in my walk or I think are biblical truths that can help. Three things if you're feeling not thirsty this morning for his word. Firstly, God knows your heart better than you do. Romans 2.16 declares that the Lord will judge the secrets of men. And 1 Samuel 16.7 says that while we might look at the outward appearance of one another, the Lord looks at the heart. And so for me, it's a good practice to start simply by praying honestly to God in self-assessment. He knows anyway. I've prayed, and I'm sure you've maybe done similar things like, God, you know that I'm distant. You know that I don't feel like reading or listening. You know what's wrong with my heart better than I know it myself. Please break my heart of stone and give me a heart for you. Please remind me of your great love that it might stir me up to love you more. I'm utterly in need of your mercy and help to change. I think if we try to start by self-motivating ourselves, we do tend to fall flat quite quickly. If you um, start by acknowledging out loud to God that you desperately need his help, you need the Lord Jesus every day and cling to those promises and you're back on steady ground. You never earned his goodness anywhere and his love for you isn't conditional on whether you're good at seeking him. And so guilt and shame, while we might fail them at times, they should only drive us to the cross and to Jesus. If you try to fix your thirst problem just to get rid of the guilty conviction, then you'll likely sink further into it. So start with an earnest prayer for God to give you a desire and a thirst for him. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, God says to Paul, just a short verse, says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And secondly, if you don't have a spiritually wise friend to share life with and to talk these things through, then ask for one. And I don't mean like a good friend just for a coffee or sharing hobbies with. I mean like a friend you can be accountable with and share spiritual struggles with. It doesn't matter if you're especially close or if you're the same age. Seek friends who will spiritually help you in your race. Be prepared to ask them and have them ask you where are you at at the moment in your walk. Be deliberate in who you share life with and walk with. Proverbs 13, verse 20 says, Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. That's so true in our spiritual walk as well. So by all means, don't isolate yourself from the world, but walk with the wise. And my personal testimony really is very rooted in that kind of issue. I'm sure Ben wouldn't mind us pointing out, it really took um, his prompting, he's not here this morning obviously, but uh, Ben Oliver, it took his prompting and discipling his regular uh, questions to see the importance of this, to have somebody say, how's your walk at the minute? What are you reading at the minute? How is it speaking to you? It was done gently, but it was also done deliberately. And so I found myself accountable to brothers. And I needed that keeping in check, and I still need that keeping in check. I think we all benefit from those questions to keep us sharp. This part of, uh, it's part of being devoted to one another in love, uh, that we seek the good of other brothers and sisters in Christ. And thirdly, this is maybe the hardest one, is to understand that discipline is part of the Christian faith as well. As we all know that good habits can be difficult to start, and we know that bad habits can be very difficult to break. And it's clear from the early believers in Troas that they just turned up because they were eager to be there. They didn't seem to need to be persuaded or dragged along. The room was full. They were in good habits. And when I sometimes struggle in those dry spells by waiting for the feeling or for the emotional um, desire to be there before taking action, you can be waiting a very long time. And actually, I need to be prepared to be disciplined as well. There's that brilliant description in 1 Corinthians 9 of the athlete who's training to win 
the prize. And it's so true. An athlete who's going for gold doesn't get up every morning feeling motivated to train. And I'm sure they could sometimes murder a curry and a nan. But they discipline their bodies, don't they? Because they know that they have to do it to thrive. They discipline themselves to receive the prize. And you and I, we're not trying to impress God by reading and praying and coming to church, but we know that these things are necessary to spiritually thrive. It is worth doing the routine, even if you don't feel like doing it right now, because we know that it's necessary to thrive. If you don't feel the joy right now, it's still worth disciplining yourself in reading and in prayer and in fellowship, because God does speak to us in these things. To keep on the metaphor of the athlete, the athlete who slips up and maybe has that massive curry and stuffed paratha or whatever it might be, he can choose the next night to follow that up with a Chinese banquet if he wants to. Or he can get back into training because he knows that that disciplined approach is going to bring him back into peak condition. And we likewise, likewise, if we take up good habits in our personal life and our spiritual walk, if we're disciplined, we'll know Jesus more closely and begin to thirst for him more as we commit to him. As we conclude this morning, I hope it's been useful just to hone in really on those two key points there. We've looked at the unity the church has in Christ and the encouraging words that Paul gave to keep all of the churches united in their shared mission. We've studied the example of the church in Troas as they were eager to listen to Paul and they were eagerly thirsting after God and his words. I won't say more about those, but I will finish with a play just based on the picture we have of Eutychus, something that was a bit of a twist almost that I didn't think of. John Weasley, uh, John Weasley, John Wesley, <laughs> said of this passage, <clears throat> John Wesley, yeah, much wiser, um, said of this passage, they brought the young man in alive, but alas, how many of those who have allowed themselves to sleep under sermons, or as it were, to dream awake, have slept the sleep of eternal death and fallen to rise no more. Uh, that was just such a challenging way of looking at it. Perhaps you come into church each week and you hear the songs, you hear the sermons, um, but in some way it doesn't really still impact your heart. Like Eutychus, it's like you're here, but you're not receiving anything. And like he says, it's like dreaming awake. Before Jesus opens our eyes to the truth, we're all spiritually dead. As the Bible says, we're all stuck in sin, all helpless to realize it, all blindly headed to eternal death, as John Wesley said. But no matter what we preach about living for Jesus or doing good works or anything that we preach about trying to follow the Bible's teaching, none of it matters at all until you've come to the cross. At the cross, your sin is paid for by the death of Jesus who paid the debt. He did all the work already so that you and I would be freed and made fit for eternal life. And so please don't be a Eutychus when it comes to the gospel message. Don't be asleep but hear the call of Jesus to turn to him, to trust in him to confess his sin and believe in his name. And he promises that like Paul with Theotokos, that you'll be made alive in him as well. You'll see the world differently. You'll know a great saviour and you have a purpose for the rest of your life for him. And I hope all of us this morning can carry that joy and that truth into the week as well. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for just the um, windows of time that we get into the, the New Testament church and the way that by your spirit you stirred them up. Uh, you brought souls uh, out of bondage and into your kingdom. 
And not only that, we also see the way that they progressed on, the way that you sanctified and changed them through your word, the way that you brought these words of encouragement through Paul to them, that they might be changed and made fit for your kingdom, that they might continue to press on towards the goal, that they might discipline themselves and be um, following you every step of the way. And I thank you, Lord, that most importantly, in every step that we do take, you promise by your spirit to minister to us, to be with us, to guide us and lead us home. I pray, Lord, that this morning, if there's anyone who's maybe sleeping awake and still yet to have the impact of the gospel, turn their life upside down and see you for who you are, that they might acknowledge you as Lord and Saviour and as King, even here this morning, might be challenged to go away marvelling in what you've done for them. So, Lord, I pray as we continue to study your word in Acts in the coming weeks, that we keep seeing in these windows reasons to rejoice, reasons to be challenged, reasons to be warned and urged on towards that goal that you set for us and consider everything worth forsaking for the glory of your kingdom and for your name. I ask these in Jesus' name. Amen.